Okay, so today we've got Ali Chaudhary, who is a postdoc at IMI, talking to us. Yeah, the floor is yours. Okay, all right. Thanks very much. So good morning, everyone. And um, so today what we're going to do is I'm going to give you a lecture. And what I'm going to do with this lecture today is I'm actually going to outline a theoretical argument, substantive argument, that and this lecture is going to turn into a paper that I will publish. And so I'm very curious about what you think, your reactions to this lecture, your criticisms, your comments, and of course, maybe some of you will write about this in tutorial essays, or we'll talk about this in tutorials. But if you're not writing an essay for this class or you're not coming to tutorials, feel free to send me emails on any ideas you have or problems you have with the argument I'm going to lay out. Um, I want to start today, though, by asking you about this word, assimilation. So, what, does anyone have any thoughts on this? What do you think of? Does, does it, does, is there anyone that doesn't has never heard of this before? Raise your hand if you've never heard of assimilation. Okay, good. All right. Any thoughts? Opinions? Yeah. I think it was a very American thing. It's very American. Okay. Very okay. interesting. I actually think of France. I think of France. So America, France. Okay. Is is it like a bad word? Or I mean, is it something that we would consider wrong? Yeah. Well, that obviously depends on who you ask. Um, I would see it as a bad word. Right? Yeah. For the most part, at least. interesting and, and, and very helpful, right? So these are some of the ideas that are often associated with the term assimilation. Just like you said, it's often considered you know, a bad word or, or something that's really like not an ideal way to talk about immigrant integration. And it's also quite often associated with the United States, with France. Um, so we're going to explore how this concept evolved. Like how did it start? Why did it come about? How has it evolved? And what are the different alternatives that have emerged through immigration studies to this concept? Uh, we're then going to look at a new concept that I'm developing called racialized incorporation and the advantages or the weaknesses of that. And then we'll talk about global manifestations of how these things work. So let's start by talking about this whole process of migration. We're getting an MSc in migration studies. A simplistic way to think about what this whole thing is are these three processes. Movement, people moving, going places. Settlement, right? People arriving somewhere, settling. And then belonging. 
These three steps are the way that Peter Cavisto and Thomas Feist have explained these, the process of migration as, as in a holistic way in a book that they, they wrote a few years back to try to distangle the different processes that you're studying in this MSc program. So today what we're going to do is focus on belonging. So how do we analyze this part, right? So you've already learned all about why people move and all of that stuff and settlement stuff, refugees, not refugees, populations. But today we'll focus on belonging. Like how does that happen? Now, there's a few different ways that people study the idea of belonging. There's citizenship, right? That's one way to study belonging. There is assimilation, incorporation. It's another way people study belonging. Um, another way that this has been looked at is multiculturalism, as either as a philosophy or as a set of policies. We have transnationalism as a new way to think about belonging. And then finally, what I'm going to introduce to you today and argue about, which is racialized incorporation. And a, a variant of that, which I'll talk about at the end, is global racialization, how these processes shape belonging. Now, one of the articles I assigned by my former mentor, Armin Blumrad, they describe four dimensions of citizenship. So when we think of what is citizenship, they do a pretty good job of laying out the different ways that political scientists, political theorists, different types of social scientists have thought about citizenship. They outline four dimensions of citizenship. The first is legal status, right? So who has the right to be in a given territory or polity? And in this first part, when we think about belonging, whether you have citizenship or not is definitely a way where we can exclude folks and then also include people, right? So either you have a status here or you don't. Another way it's thought about is rights. So who has rights you know, to activate if they're a citizen or not a citizen? Um, in the political science literature, citizenship is often closely associated with political participation. So to be a citizen means you're actually participating in the political system of the country. And then finally, citizenship is also discussed broadly as, again, a sense of belonging. Now, citizenship, when we think of it, it's a symbol of membership, as I just mentioned. Um, that membership in a nation offers you formal and substantive rights. Without citizenship, individuals can have human rights, but they don't have the means to challenge the wrongs within a national system. So in that sense, citizenship gives you not only a sense of belonging, but it gives you power in a way. It gives you some agency. Because if you're a citizen, you can challenge the state. And citizenship is also as a measure, is used as a measure of immigrant corporation, and in particular naturalization. So rates of naturalization is often used as a way to see how are immigrants integrating. Other forms of immigrant or corporation that are used in the social science literature empirically to study include this list. So people study rates of labor market incorporation, they study self-employment, educational attainment, language proficiency, intermarriage, where people live, residential segregation, political participation, uh, membership in organizations, uh, their identities, how people negotiate identities in the place of settlement, and finally religiosity. So these are all the different ways that social scientists study immigrant integration. Now, when it comes to theoretical perspectives of immigrant operation, we're going to move away now from citizenship and look at how do social scientists try to study the process of integrating. And these are the, the five 
uh, frameworks or theoretical approaches that we're going to talk about today that I'm going to go over. So the first is classical and neoclassical assimilation theory, which we're going to spend a great deal of time discussing. Um, the second is a variant of that called segmented assimilation theory. Uh, we have theories of multiculturalism, transnationalism, and then finally racialized corporation. So in order to appreciate or understand how and why assimilation theory came about, like why was it formulated, it's important to understand the context in which it, was, which it emerged. So it emerged in the United States, and just very, very briefly, for those of you who aren't familiar with this, you know, so the United States was a British colony until 1789, and it was primarily comprised of immigrants from Britain, Ireland, and Germany, as well as Africans from West Africa and the West Indies that were there as slaves, and a small proportion of them were there as free, free blacks. Uh, in the early to mid-19th century, there was a mass migration from Northwest Europe into the United States. That migration was then shifted in the late 19th, early 20th, to early 20th century to be comprised more of Southern and Eastern Europeans, as well as Chinese, Japanese, and Punjabi Indians on the West Coast of the United States. So this was the kind of demographic makeup of the US. Now, these immigrants tended to generally uh, concentrate in these large industrial cities in the United States. So places like Chicago, New York City, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, large cities. On the West Coast, it was primarily San Francisco. This is also happening at a time of rapid industrialization, as you're probably all familiar with, right? So this is the time when you know there's a lot of industrialization happening in Europe, and it's also happening in the US. So what that means is there's a lot of jobs. There's a lot of activity happening in these cities, which is why people are migrating there. These are just some pictures from that, from that era, the early 20th century. Now, during this time, in the late 19th and early 20th century, there's also very, very high levels of anti-immigrant sediment. So here you see cartoons this is from the New York Times, talk, you know, portraying a Chinaman being basically you know, kicked out, the Chinese must go. There was a lot of discrimination against Irish immigrants, mainly by native-born kind of British descent people. And many of this was also tied to the transnational issues that were going on between the UK and Ireland at this time. There was quite a bit of discrimination against Japanese, other Asian groups, and of course, widespread anti-Semitism throughout all of these cities in the United States in the early 20th century. At the same time, you have very, very, very dramatic race relations unfolding in this particular time. So this is a time in the aftermath of the Civil War, so-called African Americans are free, they're no longer slaves, but there's a new system of inequality being implemented at this time. It's referred to as the Jim Crow type policies. There's very, very severe segregation between blacks, basically all non-whites and whites, not just blacks, it's all groups that are not considered white. So this is also the time where you have large anti-black and uh, racist type of groups emerging, in particular the Ku Klux Klan. This is a huge march that was done in 1919, the Ku Klux Klan in Washington, D.C. And this is also a time of very, very severe violence against African Americans in the United States. It's important to understand that this is the context in which new immigrants are coming to the United States. And that helps you understand why assimilation theory was formulated, how it was formulated. These were the two proponents of the assimilation theory. The first one is Booker T. Washington, who was the head of the Tuskegee Institute in the United States, and the other was Robert Park. Robert Park was a sociologist at the University of Chicago. Park 
Clark wanted to understand how group intergroup relations were playing out in the South, in this context of, of, of lynchings and all these horrible things that were happening. So he, Robert, Sir Booker T. Washington invited him to come to Tuskegee and spend a few years there seeing how things are playing out in the rural South between whites and between blacks. Through this, Park developed the, what is called the race relations cycle. And he published this in 1914 in a paper called Racial Assimilation of Secondary Groups with Particular Reference to the Negro. He'd argued that assimilation was a category of sociological analysis and that it was a process. And that race, the way it was thought of, was an impediment to assimilation. What he meant was by differentiating between people on the account of their race is, is a barrier to the process of assimilation. And the way he understood it was assimilation is a process that makes two things similar, so to make like, and then also to take up and incorporate a, a, a common shared culture. He formulated this in this idea of the race relation cycle, and he tried to be a, look historically at how this had emerged. So the first cycle, he said, was competition. And he looked at 17th century United States, and he saw that there was competition happening between Africans and early colonialists, for basically for resources. This then moves into conflict, right? So between colonialists, indigenous Americans, as well as the Africans. This is then followed by accommodation. And in accommodation, he basically was referring to slavery, uh, the Jim Crow policies that were going on. And in the case of, of indigenous people in America, they were moved to reservations. So he interpreted that as a form of accommodation. And then finally, the fourth stage would be assimilation. Now, when he was writing, assimilation wasn't happening. When people have gone back and tried to reinterpret this, people think of the assimilation part as possibly this push for civil rights that comes in the 60s, where people are trying to become equal, trying to make race no longer part of a barrier. So that's how it's been interpreted in the past. So what he did is, even though this was a theory based on white-black relations, he then applied it to the, to the city of Chicago, which at this time, as I just showed through the pictures, was, was a meeting place of all kinds of different European immigrants, as well as African Americans that were coming from the rural South, also moving to Chicago. So it kind of served as a natural laboratory for these folks to kind of see how these group processes are working in Chicago. Park argued in 1914 that for groups to successfully assimilate, they must adopt the language and cultures of the dominant groups, they must embrace one shared national identity, they must play by common rules adhered to the laws, and they must adopt the core values of a society. And I would argue that this sounds a lot like European countries today that claim that they're not the US and that they're not assimilationists. It doesn't sound that strange, right? But this is the prototype of assimilation, these ideas. Now, the concept of assimilation, in many ways, really was, didn't really take off at that time in 1914. One of the reasons why is that the United States stopped all immigration in 1924. They stopped immigration during World War I, and after 1920, in, in 1924, they halted all further immigration from southeastern Europe, from Asia. So there were no new immigrants coming in. So in that sense, if you look at the development of social science at that time, people no longer were really focusing on these ideas. Assimilation as a concept really got picked up again in the 1960s. And the reason it got picked up was now there was all these children of these European immigrants who were now reaching adulthood and having their own children. 
So now you had a second generation and a third generation of Poles, Italians, Irish, Jewish folks in the United States. And people were interested in, you know, how does this process work? The idea of trying to understand the process of assimilation through their experiences was picked up by a sociologist named Milton Gordon. And in 1964, he published a book which was very influential called Assimilation in American Life. What he did in this book is he proposed that there were seven stages of how assimilation works. And this book and these ideas became very much associated with this idea of the melting pot. I'm sure you've heard of that before if you've ever been to the United States or heard anything about that, that the United States is a melting pot. And all these different groups show up and they basically all just become American. So this is where this idea comes from, was from this book. Now, his first stage was acculturation. He said the first thing that newcomers have to do is they have to basically embrace the culture of the society and the core values. This is then followed by structural assimilation, which means that they have to become incorporated into the educational system, the labor market. This will be followed by intermarriage. So these immigrants will marry the majority group, the native majorities. You'll see higher rates of intermarriage. This will then lead to an identificational shared sense of nation, so a shared sense of belonging. But the two things that are not talked about too much in this theory is that he said that those things will only happen if these next two things are, are, exist. So one, attitudinal reception, so there has to be no prejudice against these immigrant groups from the receiving society. And then behavioral receptional. There needs to be no discrimination against these immigrant groups from the receiving society. And if all that happens, they will eventually reach the highest level of assimilation, which is integrating into the political system, running for office, you know, becoming a part of the polity. So in many ways, the stages aren't sequential. And most people focus on the first four, but I'll argue, as you'll hear later in the lecture, that people tend to not pay too much attention to number five and number six. So he's not saying that assimilation is just going to happen. I mean, in that sense, the way that most people think of assimilation theory, he was actually arguing that it, it is a process that involves the host society and the immigrants. There has to be no discrimination, no prejudice in order for it to work. It's not going to work if you have all this prejudice. And that's interesting when we think about political debates, because there's very little emphasis on what about the host society. So there's a lot of discussion, oh, these immigrants need to assimilate, these immigrants need to get their act together. But there's very little discussion about well, what about the receiving society? What are we going to do to reduce prejudice, to reduce discrimination against these groups? So really, it, it requires both. Now, the basic idea of assimilation is as follows. And it's this notion of straight line, that it works in a linear fashion. Here, you see basically a measure of social mobility. Social mobility refers to your education, your occupation, how much income you make. And the idea is that this is the immigrant generation. These are the children of immigrants, grandchildren of immigrants. As each generation grows up and lives in society, they will increasingly have higher levels of social mobility. That's the general idea. Each generation will do better than the parents, than the grandparents, the generation before. And in the case of Europeans in the United States, European immigrants, the children of immigrants, this was found to be empirically valid, that every group after the immigrants in the early 20th century did better than the past, to the point where, in 1963, GFK, the grandchild of Irish immigrants, became the president of the United States. So this is the context in which these ideas come about, because there's empirical validity to them in the case of Europeans. Now, around this time, there also started to be people detracting from this idea, people starting to question the notion of assimilation. So 
This was first articulated in a very seminal, influential book by Nathan Glacier and Daniel Patrick Moynihan called Beyond the Melting Pot. Now, what they were interested in was how Irish, in particular, Italians and Jews, were actually maintaining their cultures, how they were maintaining and celebrating their ethnic identities in New York City. They had not dropped all of their cultural characteristics and customs and just adopted some kind of uniform American kind of life. They were maintaining all of these ideas, and they were still American. I mean, they, they, they wanted to show how they were doing both at the same time. And it was very influential. And in this book, they, they questioned this idea of Americanization versus ethnic culture, like saying that, is that essentially what assimilation is doing? It's saying that Americanization, becoming this, is what you should do, and you should reject, drop, shed your ethnic culture. They questioned, is assimilation really a desirable outcome Right, from the perspective of these groups. And finally, they made, they made the claim that if you have that assumption, you, within there also is that these ethnic cultures are inferior to American culture, that that's embedded in that assumption. Later scholars in that time also started to then argue that you know, ethnic cultures are actually assets, that many groups retain them and are still successful. It's not an either or, that it could actually be both. And what you see is this is also then the time when you start seeing massive racial, ethnic, cultural transitions in Europe and the United States from all the new immigration. And this is the beginning of discourses of ethnic pluralism and multiculturalism. So those ideas of ethnic pluralism, multiculturalism, they can be directly related back to this initial work beyond the melting pot. And a lot of people you know, were really influenced by that book. And, and you see that in both scholarship and policy discourses that start to emerge in the 1970s and in the early 1980s in Europe and in North America. Now, it's important before we move to the next transition of assimilation theory to, again, spend some time and, and really try to appreciate the context in which these things are changing. So I showed you that you know the original idea of assimilation theory, where that came from, it's coming in this context of the early 20th century. It's coming from a context where there is a lot of demographic transition from Europe coming to the United States, and you have all these groups meeting, and you have high levels of intergroup conflict between the immigrants themselves, and especially between African Americans and all of the, uh, the European groups that are there. In the 1970s and 80s, both in Europe and the United States, again, you see massive social transformation happening as a result of not just migration, but other macro-level uh, processes unfolding. So you have dramatic demographic changes happening in the general demography of all these populations in terms of the age structure of these countries. You also have, of course, racial and ethnic diversity increasing because people are now starting to move to these countries. And then you know, the largest kind of structural change happening is there's a major shift in the economic structure of all these societies. So in particular, in Europe, for the most part, you have a high level of post-colonial immigration going to places like the UK, uh, France, and a variety of other European countries, which is changing the makeup. And you have, at the same time, large numbers of non-European immigrants coming to the United States for the first time in, in a large wave of immigration. So these are primarily migrants from Asia, from Africa, and then from Latin America. The largest structural change happening at this time is post-industrialization. In the 1970s is really the beginning of the post-industrialization kind of era. And also the rise of the service sector economy, which has a direct effect on 
where people migrate to, and I'm sure you've already been learning about this stuff in some of your other lectures you've listened to. As I said, that these things result in increasing racial and ethnic diversity. At the same time, in the 1970s, we start seeing very high rates of poverty that have never been seen before in, in Europe and the United States. And this is closely correlated with increasing crime in these urban areas. And again, these are urban areas that are, that are really experiencing high levels of urban decay as a, po as a result of post-industrialization. So it's a result of all the jobs basically disappearing in all these places, and then having these large African-American and in the West Coast Latino communities that are there that are suffering this kind of you know high rates of unemployment, poverty. These are the same places where now all these new immigrants are coming to. So you have this, again, a new convergence. But the difference this time compared to the 1920s is there is no employment. So it's not like it was in the early 20th century where these groups are converging and there is work for everybody because there's a huge economic boom happening. Now in the 1970s and 80s, these groups are all converging, but now there's no work. Right? There is no economic opportunity. There's just high rates of unemployment. There's very, very a lot of problems with housing. And again, high crime. And this is then... On top of all of this, you have, at the same time, increases in hyper-policing and intergroup conflict, as well as mass incarceration, especially in the United States. I mean, this mass incarceration trend is now starting to actually take hold in Europe as well as, and in Canada, but it really begins in the 1970s and 80s in the US. So you have all these factors that are happening. So it's, the reason I, I want to go through this is to try to then make you see why these kind of alternatives to simulation theory starting to emerge in order to kind of understand the empirical reality of what was happening. So again, just some pictures to kind of give you some idea, right, or a little bit of context here. So here you have a lot of post-colonial immigration going to France, to the UK. This is the seminal moment where US immigration law changes, and this is a picture taken in 1964. It's in 64, I think. The act actually got implemented in 65. The picture's from 64. It's then President Lyndon B. Johnson. I know it's a bit, it's a bit blurry. And there's uh, Ted Kennedy and Bob Kennedy. And they're basically signing the Hart Seller Act. What this act did is that, if you recall, I mentioned that in 1924, all the immigration in the United States halted. So what they had at that time was they put in a quota system. And basically, the quota system, the way it worked, is the, the policy in the US said that, you know, Immigrants can come here, but they can only come in numbers that are proportionate to what we already have in the US. And what this essentially did is it privileged British, German, other Northwestern groups for immigration because there were already large populations, and it made sure that very few people could immigrate from basically countries from Africa, from Asia, and, and from Latin America because the numbers weren't as large. What they did in 65, and this was closely aligned with the Civil Rights Act, is they passed an act saying that there can no longer be quotas or any aspect of law that, that is based on national origins, race, ethnicity. And this was a widespread reform happening in all US laws. They were removing race and these distinctions out of laws. So this act got passed, which basically got rid of the quota system, effectively opening the gate to immigration to the US in 1965. And again, as I mentioned, this is just some pictures to show you, right, that this is the time of rapid deindustrialization. So all those factories I showed you the pictures before, they're all booming, full of people working. Here's those factories now in the 1970s and the 1980s. They're basically abandoned, deserted. The high rates of poverty, we see homelessness in the U.S. and in certain parts of Europe extremely, like, like increasing 200% in the 1980s. 
And then, of course, as I mentioned, high rates of hyper-policing, the, the kind of emergence of police states in a lot of these large cities, and group conflict. Here's some, some folks getting harassed here in, in the UK. So one of the pivotal moments that happens in terms of immigration scholars happens in 1992. So in the 1980s, again, if you look at, if you look at your bibliographies, there's very little immigration research on integration happening in the 1980s in Europe or in, in America. There's just very little of it. No one really knows how they're integrating because they, they're just showing up. There hasn't been enough time yet. I mean, they started coming in the 70s in large ways in the 80s, but nobody knows. And the idea that many liberal kind of scholars have is that, you know, we've passed the Civil Rights Act. We don't have all the racism we had before. So things are better. And you have the 1980s in the U.S. and here with Margaret Thatcher in the U.K. You have this time where you have leaders saying that, you know, we have very good functioning societies. And people that are not doing well, it's their own fault. They just, you know, they just not. They don't have their act together. You know, they're just not putting in the effort. So you have very, very kind of celebratory discourse of how great things are. Well, what happens in 1992 in Los Angeles is there's a major race riot. It's the largest race riot since the 1960s, and it makes everybody. It kind of catches people off guard, especially in the, in the academy, because they're like, "Wait a minute, what's going on? Like, how did this? How did this happen?" Right? So this is nothing, this is not surprising to people that have been studying race ethnicity in the United States and about policing and poverty for African, American, African Americans. But it's shocking the way that the intergroup conflict has emerged between immigrants and African Americans, and then of course the police forces in the cities. This is a picture uh, in Koreatown of Korean immigrants on top of their roofs with rifles shooting anyone who's black that comes near their stores to burn or loot their stores. This is a picture from that same era in the UK. These are Pakistani men here beating a, a white man in, in uh, Brixton. There were race riots here all throughout the UK during this time. And then these are the police in the aftermath. And then these are riots from 1995 in Paris, where you have all kinds of different uh, North African immigrant groups uh, protesting, rioting because of uh, death in police custody of a young man of Moroccan descent. So in response to all this, the immigration scholars in the 1990s come up, they basically argue, that, okay, we need to come up with a new way to think about assimilation because these theories we have aren't working. There isn't this successful linear process happening. There's all kinds of different things happening. So the most influential theory that emerges is called segmented assimilation. And it's formulated by immigration scholar, sociologist Alejandro Portes and Min Zhao. What they say is that assimilation theory, the way that we think of it in this classic way, the way that it worked for European immigrants, it doesn't apply anymore for these new groups that are coming, and it doesn't apply in the context of the societies we're living in. This isn't the same, like as I just mentioned, it's not the same era of industrial boom like the European immigrants got to experience in the 1920s. This is a period of stagnation, of poverty. So the outcomes are going to be different. And they, they propose there's three assimilation outcomes now. 
The first is the kind of straight line classic assimilation, which is basically growing acculturation and integration into the white middle class, so the traditional assimilation. So they're arguing that this is, this is still happening to some groups. In particular, in their empirical research, they show that this is still occurring for certain East Asian groups that are coming to the United States. So certain groups from Korea, from China, they're still experiencing this traditional assimilation. Their educational outcomes, their labor market outcomes, they are reaching parity with native-born majority groups. But they also started to discuss that there's also something else happening now, which is some of these American groups and their children are actually incorporating into permanent poverty. They're assimilating into what they call, what these authors refer to as the urban underclass. So they didn't say it, but exactly what they were saying was some of these immigrants are actually integrating and, and living in all black neighborhoods and Latino neighborhoods, and you know it's basically an underclass. It's, it's rampant with poverty and crime. They're not going to have that same linear, successful integration experience, which is predicted in the assimilation theory. The third outcome that they propose in this segmented assimilation theory was that there may be rapid economic advancement, but with the preservation of immigrant cultures and community solidarity. And they called this delayed assimilation via ethnic enclaves. So what they meant in this was that you know, some immigrant groups aren't going to necessarily move into the white suburbs and you know, have this American dream life. Some of them are not going to necessarily move into ghettos. Some are actually going to create their own enclaves they're going to kind of thrive in these enclaves for a while, and it might be another generation until they move out of those enclaves. And in some ways, they were, they were channeling what was somewhat the experience of European immigrants 50, 60 years earlier, where there were a lot of very, very vibrant Italian, Irish, uh, Polish enclaves throughout major cities in the US. And that was also true here in the UK. There were, there were vibrant Jewish enclaves in London, Italian enclaves, Polish enclaves. And that was generally an observed pattern that, okay, the immigrants kind of do congregate in these enclaves. They make a lot of small ethnic businesses, they make restaurants. But generally, the children of them, whether they're born in these countries, they'll move out of those enclaves and they will you know, do well. So they wanted to say that there's three possibilities. Around this time in the 1990s, again, in response to all these things that are happening, right, the, the, the poverty and the, the intergroup conflict, and also just people being very skeptical about assimilation theory, and especially when you think of it as a predictive theory, like, is this really what's happening? So in response to that, you have the philosophy of multiculturalism emerge. In the 1990s. And it's important to distinguish between multiculturalism as a philosophy, which it is, multiculturalism as a descriptive kind of term, right? Like this classroom is very multicultural. Okay, so th there it is as a descriptive term. And then thinking about it as a set of policies that are designed to facilitate immigrant integration. So it was originally conceptualized as an alternative to assimilation theory. So there was, it was really people feeling that, you know, this is really not a good way to explain the experience of immigrant integration, and it's really not something that we should be striving for. So this came from basically the influence of, 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 of Glacier and Moynihan in the uh, Beyond the Melting Pot book. Now, most of the time when it's used in immigration research, it's referring to a set of government policies Right? They're designed to facilitate incorporation by allowing immigrants to retain their ethnic and cultural identities. And the 
key proponents have been Will Kimlicka, uh, a few other scholars, uh, Taylor, and then uh, again, Irene Blumrad has been one of the key proponents of this, how this works. Now, it's similar to kind of what you mentioned in the beginning, the gentleman in the back. But the idea here is that we don't want to necessarily say one culture is superior to the other, right? Because if you kind of follow the assimilation logic, which is saying that everyone should just you know adopt the core values, there is that inherent assumption that you know your cultures are inferior, and if you want to live here, you need to adopt our cultures. So multiculturalism wanted to try to have a more holistic, inclusive kind of way to approach this from the government's point of view. Right, so in order to help facilitate integration, rather than just making people only learn, let's say, their K through 12 education only in one language, to maybe offer multiple languages to kind of you know increase bilingualism, increase the education of other people's cultures, and it was this general idea, kind of a liberal idea, right, to kind of make a more inclusive way for people to integrate themselves into society and their children. Now. Starting in the 1990s, and especially in the 2000s, there were many critics of multiculturalism that emerged. And in 2000, I believe it was 2007 or 8, Angela Merkel made the famous announcement that multiculturalism has failed in Germany. And one of the, the reason people made these arguments is that they felt that, that it promotes self-segregation. So there was a lot of these types of critiques made in the UK, talking about places like Bradford, Birmingham, a variety of other places, saying that these are self-segregated ghettos. These people don't want to integrate. They don't want to become British. And it's because of multiculturalism. It's because we've allowed them to celebrate their cultures and keep their cultures that now they're a problem. This is why we have all this stuff. Now, one of the things that's interesting about the critics of multiculturalism is they don't really talk about the context. So in the places where you see these, these critics emerge of multiculturalism and, you know, and, and using empirical evidence that there's self-segregation, there's high rates of poverty in these immigrant communities, there's never any real discussion that there's actually a large macro reason why there's self-segregation, why there's high unemployment, is there's no jobs, right? There's no economic opportunities in those communities. Very difficult to move out of a segregated kind of neighborhood if you have no job. I mean, moving is expensive. So that's one of the interesting things about the critics of multiculturalism. And as I said earlier, a lot of these folks that are critical of it, actually, they won't say it, the scholars and the politicians, but they actually endorse an assimilationist ideology, like what we have in the United States. That's actually what they would rather see. Right? But they won't come out and say that, because as we've heard earlier, assimilation is kind of not the greatest term to use. But that's essentially what people argue for that are critics of multiculturalism. And as I, that's one of the next point here, that you know, if you if you talk to someone in Canada, or you talk to someone in the government of Canada, right, they'll argue that we're the only country that's actually doing multiculturalism. We're the only country that's actually put our money, you know, where these policies are and actually fully funded them. The argument is that the European countries that call themselves quote unquote multicultural are just symbolically multiculturalism. There's symbolic multiculturalism in the sense that it's a, it's, a, it's a favorable political philosophy to espouse. At least it was in the 1980s and the 1990s. It's not so much anymore. 
but there was never really the resources put into it as there is in Canada. And you can see that. And then also, if you look at the political rhetoric about headscarf debates and language tests and all kinds of reasons, it was never really being implemented the way it was in Canada. So in that sense, Canada really is the only remaining country with substantial resources dedicated to multicultural policies. And in terms of the social science literature on immigrant integration, the most useful studies that, under, that, that examine whether multiculturalism policies work or don't work are studies that use Canada as a comparative case. And there's a vast literature, growing literature, that does this. Because at the end of the day, it's really the best place to actually see, okay, how does it work? You can compare Canada to the UK, Canada to the United States, Canada to any European country you want. Now, whether it was because of multicultural policies or just because of the economic situation or context of the receiving countries, what we see is that there's a rise of ethnic enclaves, new ethnic enclaves. And it, what's interesting is if you look at some of this literature that's come out in New York City and the West Coast, work with Mary Waters, Paul Kassanitz, many of these new ethnic enclaves actually emerged in the same geographical space that the old ethnic enclave was in. So the old Jewish neighborhood or the old Italian neighborhood, now it became the new Korean enclave or it became the new Indian enclave, or it became the new you know, West Indian enclave. So it was interesting like how there was just this kind of transfer. Right? The ethnicity changed, but it remained this kind of space, which is in some ways bounded by ethnicity, just that the ethnicities change. And these enclaves have high levels of entrepreneurship, they have high levels of ethnic businesses, and they do provide this space in between this, these two assimilation trajectories of upward assimilation into the, you know, the, the white upper middle class and downward assimilation into poverty to the urban underclass. They provide a sense of a buffer for many of these newly arriving immigrant groups. And if you look at the literature that you've probably been reading and hearing about, about social capital, social networks and migration, a lot of those nodes that create these social network types of um, migration flows, those nodes are in these enclaves, right? So this is where the, 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 the information is coming from to help people navigate where they're going to go to look for jobs or housing or to get their kids in school or to link up with their religions. And we see these enclaves all over the place. This is a Moroccan, uh, Algerians, the Moroccans. Anyways, and then South Hall here in the UK, I did some research here. That's an interesting place. If you have a chance, go check it out. Now, with the rise of the enclaves, there was also another change or another development, if you will, in this idea of assimilation, incorporation, and that was the rise of transnationalism, right, as a concept or as a way of thinking about immigration or immigrant integration. So there's a bunch of different ways that people can talk about what transnationalism is. And it's, in some ways, it is a bit of a convoluted concept. There's different ways people approach it. Um, so one thing is, I mean, one way people do is they say it's a way of studying the contemporary world. So you see people using the word transnational to talk about everything under the sun. Businesses, production chains, social movements. I'm trying to think of other examples. Sports. I mean, it's a very commonly used term, right? Um, our concern here is how it's used for immigration and for immigrant integration. Um, and in the 1990s, and especially in the 2000s, it became, it, it emerged as an alternative in the social science literature, an alternative way to study immigrant integration that recognized the way that globalization and other types of increasing cross-border connections were affecting processes of immigrant integration. It also became a way to study why people migrate, and this relates to what I just said about social networks and ties between different 
locations, so social networks facilitating migration from India to New York or to London or to San Francisco. Right? It's these it's these ties to these cities that are transnational that are facilitating those migrant flows. And then, of course, it also refers to th- things that that migrants can engage in. So transnationalism works as a way to look at the world, but it's also something that people do. They can do transnational, they can be transnational, they can live transnational lives. The concept first emerges in cultural anthropology through the work of Nina Glick-Schiller and other scholars working in this tradition of cultural studies. Sociologists begin using this concept to really look at these three, the three latter things on here, right? Basically, how to study immigrant integration, why people migrate, and looking at how migrants engage in transnationalism. And this work really starts in the late 1990s and the 2000s, primarily by Alejandro Portes, Luis Corniso, Peggy Levitt, and Roger Wallinger, and some of his colleagues. Now, with respect to incorporation, there are a few perspectives that come out of the transnational literature. The first is that assimilation assumes immigrants' lived experiences are confined to the borders of the receiving state. So this is one of the critiques that transnational scholars have, basically, the assimilation research. The idea that when you arrive into this country, your life, everything that you do, is going to be confined to the territorial boundaries of that country. Transnational scholars argued in the 1990s that that's just not reality. With the technology that exists, with the, with, the, with, the, with the relatively low fares of travel, with the increasing what David Harvey calls, calls time-space compression, that you know migrants can live all kinds of lives that transcend borders. So that was one of the first critiques in terms of incorporation. So if you want to understand how immigrants are integrating a society, you can't just only look at what's happening in that country. You have to have a more transnational kind of optic in terms of understanding what's going on. Um, Luis Guarniso argued that immigrants are simultaneously embedded in two or more countries, and this was followed up later, developed by Peggy Levitt in her work on Dominican uh, migrants in, in New York. And the idea here was that you know migrants, some of them are living these transnational lives. They're, they have a foot in two different countries at the same time. Whether it's whether they're entrepreneurs and they're bringing goods from their home country to sell in their shop here in New York City, or whether they're involved in politics, where they're involved at the same time in domestic politics and transnational politics, or whether it's cultural, or it's a cultural type of aspect, right, where their culture transcends these boundaries. That people are actually living transnational lives. Now, critics of this approach argued that perhaps transnational living promotes divided loyalties. Right? This idea that could there be, could you have two loyalties, or do you actually need to pick one? And so this became a common critique of the transnational literature. Now, in response to that critique, uh, Luis Guarniso, I myself, including in a paper with Mongolia and Cortez looked at political evidence on politics showing that actually the two were actually quite complementary. So the immigrants that engage in politics in the receiving country are also likely to engage in politics in their home country, that there isn't this divided loyalty thing going on. But the jury's still out on how this works, right? On can you maintain ties and still successfully assimilate into your host society? And there's no clear consensus on it. So I'm actually curious, just based on your own observations in your own lives, do you think that the two processes are complementary? Can you successfully assimilate into a country you arrive in, can an immigrant, and still remain tied to the home country? Anyone have any thoughts on that? Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. Of course. It yes. Depends how you are putting the simulation and what a simulation in your eyes means, right? Uh, however, ties and such are not putting obstruction in this process, at least in my eyes, and at least in my experience. Uh, what is very important is, like as you mentioned in the beginning, this term of acculturation, which presumably means socialization in yeah. social science. So it's like this is something which, like, you're building your um, values, your cultural values, your religious values, and many other things of that nature, and you're bringing them with you when you are moving somewhere, right? And um, by that process of moving, you are actually changing your culture, changing your identity, and many other things from that nature. Which means that a, there is no constant whatever identity and culture, and b, uh, by moving, and these kind of processes are not influencing who you are what you are and many other, yeah, in that direction. Okay, yeah, I agree with you. But any detractors from that perspective? Um, I think it really depends on how you define integration. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, of course, if it comes to, you know, legal or rights or, um, you know, status perspective, it could be, but then sometimes it's true that, you know, if you have um, a transnational living, especially when it comes to very different cultures, when it comes to um, long distances, it could be that you don't really feel integrated, even though you, you have been living in, in a country for you know many years. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I like to think that a certain level of integration is possible. You can be very familiar with the cultures of both locations or multiple locations. You could be uh, well integrated economically in your post um, receiving country. But at some level, I think the fear is that it takes away from the nation state, <laughs> patriotism, sure. that these transnationals would never fight for an army if, right. if, if necessary. Right. And I think that there might be something to that. Yeah, okay, it's, it's really, really interesting. Yeah, I think that, that, that that's where the divided loyalties, so the divided loyalties perspective really is, is talking about politics. It's about political participation. Right, that's mostly what it's... So the, the example you gave about fluid identity, I don't think as many scholars debate that. The, the identities are fluid, of course, they're fluid of many things. But really where the debate is on whether or not it's complementary contradictory processes is mainly looked at political participation. There's very little research that's looked at in terms of enlistment in armies. But in terms of the way that these social scientists, I'll include myself in this group, the way we think about that is that it's kind of an extension of that, right? So participating in the polity, being active in the politics is in some ways, I mean, if you want to use an Aristotle kind of way, it's, it's the ultimate act you could do to be a citizen of that society. That is something that, you know, at least in political theory, is considered the kind of height of that. So does it increase divided loyalties if you're too much consumed with the transnational politics of your home country? Are you as likely to then take an active part in the country where you live into the politics if you have eligibility to do so? So that's the question. As you said, that raises some points. Do you want to add something yeah, before we move on? Question, quick question following what has been mentioned so far. We've been using assimilation and integration interchangeably. Do we have differences between these two kind of concepts? We'll talk about that a little bit. Yeah. They are different, right? But they're also synonymous. And the differences have to do with which context you're talking about. 
So integration is rarely ever used to talk about immigrants in the United States. It's rarely ever used as a term, whereas it's very commonly used in Europe to talk about immigrants. And there's historical reasons why the two. And just briefly, it has to do with the fact that integration is the opposite of segregation. And in the United States, that has a very particular type of baggage associated with those terms because the United States was a segregated society. And after the 1960s, the civil rights movement, the whole process was to integrate whites and blacks. Right, throughout very things. So because the research, the policy, everything is of integration is around that topic, scholars tend to not use the term in the US. They use assimilation or a more kind of inclusive way is more of incorporation. If you don't want to necessarily put yourself in the assimilation camp, incorporation is a little bit more of a general way to go. Now, we've talked about these different perspectives on how to think about incorporation. But what I want to argue here to you is, today is that there's one thing that's missing in these theories, and I argue that that's the missing element of race in these theories of immigrant incorporation. Now, one of the reasons why is because, generally speaking, race, ethnicity, scholars, people that study the race and ethnic relations, they don't study immigrants. Like, that's not something that's really done, especially in the United States. There's no discussion or, or research using those ideas of race, ethnicity, racialization to study immigrants. It's just not very common. Um, at the same time, migration scholars tend to avoid the study of race. You will have a parade of people, even here in Oxford, come and tell you that migration has nothing to do with race. It's all about class. It's all about selectivity. It's all about push-pull factors. It's all about social networks. It's all about immigrants and acting their own agency. You'll hear about every single causal factor of why people move, what happens, except for race. That is one of the most under-theorized ideas in this. Now, why is it under-theorized? Well, here's one reason. Race is a US-centric concept. I mean, it's, it really is something that's very common in US discourse, less common right, in Europe, less common in other places. And this is an argument often made by European scholars why they don't talk about race, that it's a US-centric concept. It has to do with slavery, it has to do all these things, and we don't talk about it in Europe. People also argue that immigration to Europe is different, because European countries have long histories and were not created through immigration. So discussions of race, these types of ideas, they just don't apply to Europe. They only apply to the United States. It's important to be clear, though, on some key definitions. So first of all, the social scientific definition of race is that races are socially constructed categories associated with phenotype, national origins, and ethnicities. So over the last 50 years, most social scientists have come to a consensus that the biological differences between races that people really thought was the truth 100 years ago or whatever are actually not that different, and that really the differences we've come up with are actually socially constructed between races in terms of one race is inferior to another, one race is smarter than the other. These are all social constructions. There's racial prejudice. This refers to ideologies beliefs and attitudes. That's different from racial discrimination, which refers to actions or practices that are motivated by racial prejudice. So it's important just to be clear that these things are all slightly different. Now, racism is another term that's used. And these two definitions, which come from the, uh, the paper I, I signed from Edward Bonilla Silva, I think they're quite good. This is from Vandenberg. In 1967, he wrote that racism is any set of beliefs that organic, genetically transmitted differences, whether real or imagined, between human groups are intrinsically associated with the presence or the absence of certain socially relevant abilities. Racism, Schaefer writes in 1990, is a doctrine of racial supremacy. 
that one race is superior to the others. So this is kind of what the idea of racism is. So this is just, just a recap to give you some clarification or differentiation of these terms. This brings us then to the process of racialization. And I want to argue that racialization is a process. The first kind of formulation of how this works was put together by Michael Ami and Howard Winant in a very influential book in the United States and globally to an extent called Racial Formations in the United States, 1960s, 1990s. They argued that racial formations or racial formation is a social historical process by which racial categories are created, inhabited, transformed, and destroyed. Race is an organizing principle of social relationships that shapes the identity of individual actors at the micro level and all spheres of social life at the macro level. So this was pretty good. I mean, this really people really ran with this in the 1990s, scholars that studied race in the city. But the one limitation to this work is that it really focuses on the socio-historical process. And part of that is because the work really is focusing on the experience of African Americans in the United States, which is directly tied to the socio-historical process of Africans in America and all of the things that have happened over the 400 years of their presence. Racialization as a concept, which emerged about 10 years later, tried to make give a more kind of universal way to think about it, aside from the experience of African Americans. So this is a really interesting de- definition I like by John Solomos, a British sociologist, and he argues that racialization is collective public discourses which imply that a range of social or political problems are a natural consequence of certain ascribed physical or cultural characteristics of minority groups. So in this sense, the racialization is a process that can actually affect or be applied or be experienced by a whole host of minority groups. And it's not, it doesn't have to be a particular minority group. And what this definition does, which I like, is it moves the concept away from race. So it doesn't have, you don't have to have racialization as a process. You don't have to have race there, talking about a particular race, in order to have the process of racialization. It can affect uh, groups in positive or negative ways, right? So if there's an assumption that if you're white and you come for a job that you must be more qualified than a black guy or whatever, that's a process of racialization for the white person too. That, you know, that, that just by your racial phenotype, I have certain expectations or I have certain assumptions. So in some ways it's better theoretically because it lets you look at different types of processes and different societies. Right? So if you were to go to certain societies where white-looking people are a minority, they would be racialized in the same way. Right? They would be racialized with a set of assumptions, oh, your hair, let's take a Muslim country. If you're a white American walking around in the Middle East, people might assume you're in the CIA. They might assume you're up to some nefarious activity in their country. There would be all these things which are also an example of racialization, right? that, that you're assuming all these things just because of the way you look or because of your culture. Now. The definition which I am going to argue about more today is a structural definition of racialization. It was put forth first in 1997 by Edward Silva, who argued that racialized social systems are societies that allocate differential economic, political, social, and even psychological rewards to groups along racial lines that are socially constructed. Racism and discrimination are the products of the structural organization of the racialized social system within any given society. So what Benin Silva does is he actually offers a structural interpretation of how racism works in any given society. And he argues that when people talk about structure in social science, 
they talk about very large macro things, the economy, political systems, the family can be a structure. But they're very universal in many ways, the way structures talked about. What Bonilla Silva does in this masterpiece from 1977 published in the American Sociological Review is he argues that race actually is also a structural uh, process and a structural type of um, principle, if you will, of social organization. It organizes how societies work based on a hierarchy between groups. And he's, of course, talking about the US case in particular, but I think we, we can agree that we can apply this to any society. We can apply this to Brazil, we can apply this to China, we can apply this to different places. That it doesn't matter what it is, there's always going to be some groups that are considered superior, some groups that are considered inferior, and that you know, there's going to be um, this discrepancy between these groups and that that's going to basically organize society. So we'll stop now for five minutes, take a break, and um, then we'll go to what I want to introduce, my concept. So thanks for your attention. Okay, so we'll pick back up. So we just described what is the process of racialization. Now, one of the things then I want to reiterate then is that racialization is a result of the historical and contemporary social and structural organization of a society. So racialization is a product of that structural organization. At the same time, racialization as a process can generate new categories of distinction which can reshape the social and structural organization of a given society. So in that sense, thinking of the racialization as a concept it's nice in that sense that it's not this structural determinist thing that's saying that, hey, everything is already determined, there's no agency, there's no fluidity. No, it, it's open. That, you know, this process can actually create new categories. It can create new divisions, right, that can happen. The advantage also is that racialization offers a structural interpretation of how inequality is reproduced. And that's one of the key things that I think is the most important analytic um, characteristic of the concept. And it's what drives my motivation to then offer this formulation of way to think about immigrant corporation. So I call this racialized corporation, and I defined it in an IMR paper from 2015 as immigrants and their children may be incorporated into pre-existing or newly formed racial categories that are hierarchical and unequal. These racial categories reproduce existing socioeconomic inequality where immigrants maintain subordinate positions to native-born majority groups. Now this concept it emerged after I did the analysis. After I had looked and saw what was happening, I needed a way to interpret it. And that's when the, where I kind of came with the formulation to explain it. I want to, before I tell you, show you some of that data that kind of helped formulate that, I want to argue some of the advantages of this framework. The first I want to argue is that it moves beyond the agency bias in migration studies. And I want to argue there is an agency bias in migration studies. There is a huge agency bias in the economics literature in migration studies, which focuses primarily on individual rational actors, which looks at how they weigh costs and benefits to move and where they'll move. There's also a huge agency bias in the cultural anthropological literature which focuses primarily on the individuals, primarily on individual experiences, and there's also a huge bias in the sociological literature, which again focuses on individuals. And I'm not trying to say that the agency of the individuals is important. Of course it is. We know that it's the dialectic between structure and agency which shapes everything. Everyone gives lip service to structure and agency in all migration research, but I want to argue that the structure part of that equation tends to be relatively under-theorized. And it's under-theorized for the contemporary moment, but the contemporary way the society is organized. 
So I believe that the racialized incorporation framework offers a much needed structural interpretation of divergent immigrant incorporation experiences. What explains why Asian immigrants, for instance, might move into the United States and get incorporated into model minorities, while African immigrants might get incorporated into another category, right, into the black category? Why does that happen? The racialized incorporation literature, the way that it's been outlined in previous research, and drawing on literature, drawing on work of Mary Waters, of Nancy Foner, my student Erica is going to do a project similar related to this. It's like we see that, that racialization does work this way, that it offers you a way to understand how things are being reproduced, how existing categories are being reproduced. It also offers a way to better reveal how immigrants conform or challenge existing racialized categories. And this is where I think it's important to actually highlight how immigrants enact their agency. By having a perspective on how societies organize a long process of racialization, you can then look and see how do different immigrants or their children, do they just follow that? Do they confirm to that? Or do they resist those categorizations? Do they challenge that identity? Do they challenge what those categories are? And by first having that there in your analysis it enables you to actually show the agency, I think, in, in a much more useful, productive way. And then, of course, this approach synthesizes the race ethnicity scholarship with immigrant incorporation, which, as I mentioned earlier, remain, for the most part, detached. And finally, it offers a way to apply racialization as a concept to theories of multiculturalism and transnationalism. So, in terms of the evidence for racialized incorporation, there's a few very key studies that I want to alert you to. One is done by Edward Tejas and Wilma Ortiz when they were both at UCLA. And what this was was basically, uh, it was really just a haphazard find. There was a big earthquake, and part of the UCLA library was damaged. And after that, there were students that volunteered to help fix it up, and they had to get a lot of stuff out. Well, some student in the basement found these boxes and they were full of surveys done in the 1960s with Mexican immigrants, the early 1960s. Full surveys. They had their information, where they lived. There was no institutional review boards. In. So they had all kinds of information that you couldn't actually collect now about people, where they live, who they are, all this stuff. So anyways, these researchers took these surveys and basically found these folks and were able to do interviews, new surveys, with their children, their grandchildren, and in some cases, their great-grandchildren to see what had been their experiences in America, what had been their experiences of integration. And what they found was that each generation did worse than their parents, and that they were all increasingly occupying this category of Latino, or this category of Mexican, which was strongly associated with, with the types of socioeconomic status you see in the United States for Latinos and Mexicans in the Southwest. Another major study which shows evidence of racialized incorporation comes from the work of Mary Waters, who looked at the children of West Indian immigrants and showed that they have lower socioeconomic status and are more likely to resemble the socioeconomic status of non-immigrant blacks in the U.S. as they integrate. So they don't integrate into this, you know, where the other immigrants are going. They integrate into this collective category of black in the United States because of the process of racialization. In my article that we'll talk about in a minute, IMR, I show that white European immigrants and their children are working in the same types of processes, although their racialization is into the majority white group. 
So it doesn't really matter that they're immigrants so much. What matters more is their racial categorization, and that explains how they did in the study I'll talk about in a minute on self-employment. And of course, all of the research in the self-employment that I do in this IMR paper basically shows that the immigrant groups, regardless if they're first generation, second generation, their experience in self-employment is, is follows the lines of these racial categories. So it's less about their individual agency, more about the way that self-employment is distributed across races. So this research, and I'll just very briefly go to it, the assumption in there comes from this approach of race as corporation. And the idea here is that race rather than immigrant status will determine the propensity and prestige associated with self-employment. So what I did in this research is I wanted to see how does your generational status, whether you're an immigrant or child immigrant, how does your race affect whether you're going to be self-employed? And secondly, more importantly, what kind of self-employment? are you going to do? Are you going to run a little shop on the corner, right, selling beer and stuff, or are you going to be running like a Silicon Valley tech firm? Because they're all self-employed, but there's different kinds of self-employed. Now, the categories used in the analysis, and these are the four main racial categories used in the United States, are non-Hispanic white, non-Hispanic black, non-Hispanic Asian, and Hispanics. Now, why those categories are the way they are, don't ask me. It's kind of ridiculous. But that is how their census divides the world up. And then there's also Native Americans, but they're not in the sample because they were less than 1%. The generational status is first generation means you're an immigrant, you're foreign-born. Second generation means you're the child of a foreign-born immigrant. And then the last designation in the census in the U.S. is third generation or later. So they can't tell if you're 10th generation, 5th generation. They just know that your parents and you were born in the U.S. So that's what we consider the kind of native-born mainstream. That's usually what everything's compared to. This research was a quantitative uh, article that used multivariate logistic regression models that were stratified by industry sectors. This is where the data comes from. It's a very large survey that's done every year in the U.S. by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and it basically just asks people a bunch of questions about their work, their employment, and what's nice about it is it has these questions about your generational status. So it asks, are you, where, were your immigrants, where were your parents born, basically? So you can actually look and say, okay, who are the children of immigrants in the U.S.? Who are the immigrants? Now, one of the key things in this paper is, is, and this goes to the social, structural kind of organizations of society, is to break down these self-employed people by their industry sectors. That's what I did in the work. So I wanted to show that there is a difference in different types of self-employment, right? So it depends which industry you're in. So FIRE stands for finance, insurance, and real estate. That has the highest prestige. And these are like basically uh, brokers, stock market, financial consultants. It's a high prestige, high income type of industry to self-employed in. At the bottom is personal services, right? So this is like the barber, the nail salon, right? Different types of personal services. And then in the middle, we have retail trade, construction, manufacturing. So we won't spend too much time looking at these numbers, but we'll look at this graph. So let's focus on the high prestige industry. So this is the most lucrative forms of self-employment. What this graph in the paper, what it showed is if you look at these groups, these are all the different groups, right? This is the race groups broken down by their generational status. The graphs you see here to the right of this one are people that have a positive probability of being self-employed in that industry. The only group that is likely to be employed in that industry, self-employed industry, are immigrant, white immigrants who are designated as white, they're immigrants, and their children. So it's basically immigrants, and I looked at where they were born, they're from Britain, Canada, Germany. 
Those are the three countries. So all of the contemporary people that are moving from the UK and Canada and Germany to America that are self-employed, they're the folks that are the most likely to be in the highest prestige industry. These groups, the Hispanics, second generation, third generation, all generations of people that are designated black are less likely than whites to be self-employed in the high prestige self-employment. And this is the self-employment that makes the most money. And it's kind of the entrepreneurship that's always discussed and celebrated in America, right? This is the kind of like the Bill Gates kind of those folks, right, doing all that stuff. So what does this tell us about racialized corporation? Well, what I argued in the paper is that it tells us that racial categorizations determine both the likelihood and the relative prestige of self-employment across generations. <coughs> The unequal racial distribution of prestige and self-employment reflects similar disparities in the wage labor market. And it was very much true. I did analysis of non-self-employed people that looked the same way. So there really wasn't much difference between whether you work for yourself or you work for someone else. You're going to be in the same industry, generally because of the racial categorization you have. And this is, again, after controlling for your skill level, your education, for all that other stuff we would want to control for. Uh, the argument here is then racial categories shape the economic corporation of immigrants and their offspring in the US. And that these racialized categories, the children being incorporated into are hierarchical. And that's what the prestige scores show, that they're really hierarchical. It's not just they're going into a category. There's one category that's in the high prestige, and the other categories are not going to have likelihood of being employed in that high prestige. Now, there's other contextual cases we can think of that also support this idea of racialized incorporation. So there's a recent study, well, not that recent now, 2010, which shows this in France. And it's really fascinating because France is a country that often says there's no race. We have no race in France, right? But there's been some really good research coming out of the United States, surprise, surprise, trying to look and see how does racialization work in France? Or how is discrimination happening in France? So this study by Adida et al. from Stanford University looked at Muslim disadvantage and economic integration of second-generation immigrants in France. And what they found is they did, these huge, they did a lot of surveys with job applicants. And they had these control studies. They had these Christian applicants and then these Muslim applicants. And they basically wanted to see like what is their experience as getting jobs. They found in their study that a Muslim candidate is 2.5 times less likely to receive a job interview callback than his or her Christian counterpart. Now, these people have equal education, equal qualifications. Their difference in the job interview process is their names. So the names is how they're determining who's who. Right. So do they have one of these Moroccan, Algerian names, or do they have some other type of Christian name? And another thing to note in the studies, they also use both Africans. So they're both African. Just one's Christian African, and the other one's a Muslim African. So it's, they're even showing that it's really the distinction here is in the religion. Second generation Muslim immigrants had lower income than their Christian counterparts after controlling for skill level experience. So with this study, what they tried to do in this was show that, that, that there is discrimination happening, but and it, in, in some ways it does align around race, but really the distinction here is, is religion. It's the religious identity of the people, which is what's kind of shaping the uh, discrimination. Evidence from Britain shows the same thing. There's been a series of studies funded by the Running Man Trust that have showed that between 2001 and 2011, racial inequality in the workplace has dramatically worsened in Britain. So these studies have shown that ethnic minorities and immigrants in Britain are more likely than whites to live in poor housing, have lower levels of employment, despite high levels of education, and have lower incomes. And that second point is really, is really showing how this racialized structure works. Immigrant, children of immigrants in Britain have very high levels of educational attainment, higher than the native British population. However, they have lower rates of unemployment, of employment. 
So they have the skills, but they're not finding the work that matches those skills. So that's interesting. I mean, that really shows there's something happening in the labor market in terms of barriers to incorporation into that labor market. Other evidence points to institutional discrimination in employment that is based on racialized categories of distinction. And the key distinctions that still perpetuate British society is black-white, although, according to Tariq Modu, that's actually declining, that increasingly people of Caribbean heritage that are black, that are in the UK, are increasingly considered part of the British national identity. However, the distinctions are stronger around religion. So Muslim versus non-Muslim, British Asian is a very much of a racialized category, and then finally Pakistani, which has been a very long, old racialized category here in the UK. So is there evidence of cross-national racialized incorporation? I would argue that regardless of human capital, immigrants and their children are incorporated into newer pre-existing hierarchical categories that are, in fact, racialized. These categories can be associated with racial, ethnic, religious, or group descriptions. So in that sense, the process of racialization is not contingent on there being races, necessarily, in the country we're talking about. They can be other forms of group distinctions. The hierarchy of categories are not fixed, and they can change over time. That's important to realize that even though it's a structural approach, it's not saying that it's completely fixed. I mean, these categories can definitely change over time. A good example of that in the UK is that if you look at the 1950s literature on race relations in the UK, there's no distinctions between people from India and Pakistan in terms of how they're racialized. But if you were to look at the literature today or look at the economic outcomes, there's a huge difference between Indians and Pakistanis. People that claim an Indian descent are actually doing quite well in the UK as opposed to people who claim a Pakistani descent. So these things can change over time. They're, they are fluid. The hierarchical nature of racialization can transcend borders and manifest globally. And that's what I want to turn to next, which is the global dimensions. Oh, question. Yeah, um, so you said, I, I wanted to ask, it seems that um, this model is quite fixed and, and static in the sense that it seems like none of these people seem to be, to be able to perform some kind of upward mobility. But then you said, of course, that they, you know, this is not fixed and can change. But does it change because they do better or because others are seen as worse? Than yeah. I would say it's, it's a combination of both. Okay. And this is one of the areas that we need more research on. We need, to see, we need more research to look at using panel data or using some type of longitude data to look at groups that occupied a lower position that have moved. And Indians in the UK are actually one of the best examples of this. Right? Groups that occupied a very low position and they moved. And it's two reasons, right? So one of it is that the, the composition of Indian migrants, Indian immigrants in the UK has changed. So in the 1950s, they were all labor migrants, just like the Pakistanis, and they all went to the northern cities and they worked in textile mills, and they were very much working class. But that migration changed over the last 50 years. Many of them are high-skilled. Many of them have much higher levels of human capital. And the second part, I think I would argue, is that yes, they're compared to Pakistanis. So in comparison to them, in the, from a societal point of view, you know, you don't have to worry about the Indians blowing themselves up. I mean, just, just sound very crude, I apologize, but the, there's, you know, that, that's part of it, right? That's actually what we're going to get into next, right? So I think it's, it's a combination of the agency of the individuals themselves, the group, but also it's partially it's the societal reception. Right? And those are the two things that, that, that affect how the categories are maintained or whether they change. So a lot of it is on the societal side. And I, I think I would argue it's more on that side, the society side, like how society views 
that group in particular. And I think that those things do change over time. I mean, you can look at the classic examples, of course, is the U.S. I mean, if you were to look 100 years ago, all of the groups that, you know, we celebrate their ethnicity and stuff like that, they were all very much discriminated against in the U.S., the Irish, the, the Poles, definitely high levels of anti-Semitism, which is still rampant in the United States. There's still high levels of anti-Semitism, but not quite at the same areas where they used to be. There's much less anti-Semitism in New York City than there was 80 years ago. There was a lot, much higher level. So I think it's a, it's a combination of the two. But I want to move now to thinking about global dimensions of racialization of immigrants. So what this refers to is similar racialization of groups that occurs across different national contexts at the same time, or different places of settlement. So the, the classic case we can think of is what I just mentioned, would be anti-Semitism. And we know that it's happened all over Europe, all over North America, historically, and that today it still continues. And it doesn't really matter which country we're talking about or what the national context is, that racialization, that discrimination is about Jewish people. It's about them. It doesn't matter where they are. If they're in the Middle East, if they're here, if they're wherever, it's a racialization that's global that affects that group. Another example, I would argue, is African descent people in pretty much every continent of the world. That there is a racialization, an inherent inferiority associated with this group. And, and we see evidence of this both historically and contemporarily. And we have all kinds of research looking at how African descent people are treated and viewed in Asia, how they're treated and viewed in South America. And of course, we have all kinds of research on Europe and North America. And then finally, I would argue that there is a definitely a historical and contemporary racialization of Muslims, right, or the Muslim other, if you will, across pretty much most continents. So I want to focus on this because this actually ties into the PhD research. So I would argue that we see today a global racialization of Muslims, specifically Muslim immigrants in particular, people that are in this category where they occupy two kind of negative descriptions or group descriptions, one being Muslim and two being immigrant. And the Muslim is a phenotypical national origin thing. It doesn't matter how religious they are. It's just it's, it's that identity. Racialization can help explain and understand, help us understand how racist and discriminatory behavior towards Muslims or groups perceived to be Muslim is occurring, right? Because often a lot of the targets are Latinos in the US and Sikhs that are both not Muslim. But again, it's about how they look, right? Just there's just news this morning that some guys, some Sikh guy with a turban got kicked off the flight to Mexico City because he wouldn't take his turban off. It's like these guys fought. Muslims for 400 years, it's just like 200 years, it's like really? Anyway, that's the racialization at work. Now evidence indicates widespread forms of anti-Muslim behavior throughout Europe, North and South America, Africa and Asia. The global racialization of Muslims, I would argue, is embedded in anti-immigrant politics and the global securitization of migration. That's what I want to turn to next. So we have to understand the context, right, again, in which this racialization is occurring and why it's global. So of course, we've had several terrorist tragedies in the last 15 years. We've had widespread counterterrorism reactions to those terrorist activities. And, and most recently, we have this refugee crisis, which is a byproduct, I would argue, of both those, the terrorism and then the counterterrorism. They resulted in the wars and the displacement in countries like Iraq, Afghanistan, and these different places. 
At the same time, we also have very high levels of anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant politics, both in Europe and the United States. And even though some of the anti-immigrant politics, especially in the U.S., a lot of it actually focuses on Mexicans and on other groups, the symbolism is still tied to security. So the way the discourse is presented is that we've got to tighten up border security on the Mexican border because a terrorist could slip through, right? But really, it's about trying to reduce numbers of Mexicans coming in a country that actually aren't terrorists. They're not Muslims. They're Catholics. But anyways, it's neither here nor there. Now, what I've argued in my couple of articles I'm working on in my PhD research is that the war on terror actually is like a regime. It's a global regime, right? And it's intrinsically tied to migration and security concerns. So immigrants in this regime are increasingly criminalized as potential terrorists or other types of potential threats to national security. Politicians push divisive political rhetoric that demonizes all migrants, refugees, and Muslims. So everybody gets lumped into this rhetoric that, oh, we need to be worried about migrants. And then, of course, the atmosphere further legitimizes the war on terror. And we can just look at this list of, of tragic events that, that really does legitimize that discourse. In the U.S. political campaign right now going on, it's very legitimate to have that discourse. It's widely accepted. Not by, of course, everybody, but you know, a large proportion of people at Trump's rallies are quite enthusiastic at those rallies. So the global regulatory regime of the war on terror, basically, this is what it consists of. This is how I've, I've written in some of my work, that Muslim or Muslim-looking immigrants are increasingly racialized and stigmatized into a new category of distinction as others. This racialized category of Muslims is associated with national origin, ethnicity, and religious affiliations. And the religious affiliation is important to recognize how that's working in the racialization, because the people that are being racialized or stigmatized in this category, they occupy all shades of phenotype. They can be very light-skinned, they can be dark, they can look African, they can look Asian. But if we're talking about a woman of any of those racial categories and she puts a hijab on, she's going to have a very similar experience regardless of what the actual her racial composition or phenotype is. Racialization in this regime is institutionalized at the global level. And it's institutionalized in a few different ways. One is immigration policy. So there is a, and I'm giving primarily the case for the U.S. and the U.K. now, because I'm not as familiar with other immigration policies. But in the U.S. and the U.K., there are separate immigration policies and processes for if you're coming from a Muslim-majority country. There are different visa processes if you're coming from a Muslim-majority country. And just, just yesterday in the New York Times, an article about how very recently a, a bill has been passed in the Senate, which has not gotten very much attention, where they have changed dual national visa policies for anyone from Syria, Iraq, I'm sorry? Oh, sorry. Iran, Sudan. Yeah. The ones who are, who are the, the, even though they are like uh, British citizens legally, if they either have traveled in their country or in yeah. this case, Iran, they might need a visa for, for travel. They have to have a visa. Yeah. yeah. So basically what the U.S. has just very recently done is before, most there's about 36 countries where you don't have to have a visa to come to the United States if you're from these countries. And these countries weren't on this list. But they've decided now that if you're a dual citizen of these countries, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Sudan, Pakistan, or if you have visited any of these countries recently, I don't know, they haven't defined what recent is. Is 10 years recent? Five years. It's five years? Okay. If you have visited these countries five years, you must have a visa to come to the United States. So you must be vetted to come onto U.S. territory. 
if you are dual citizens of these countries. So this is, I would argue, an example of a racialization at the global level that's institutionalized, right? It's part of policy. And then the final one I want to talk about, and this is what was the subject of my doctoral dissertation, is the heightened regulation of Muslim charities and transnational organizations, which facilitate uh, different types of linkages between immigrant communities in the West and Muslim-majority countries. So I'll briefly talk about this a little bit to just kind of further illustrate how the global regime works. So what I did is I looked at the case of Pakistani organizations in Canada, the US, and the UK. Three very different contexts when it comes to terrorism, when it comes to counterterrorism. I mean, the UK and the US are probably a bit more similar, but Canada is very different in how it handles these different types of policies. So I expected to see a lot of differences between how Pakistani organizations operate in these three different contexts. I did a comparative cross-national study that investigated these organizations, how they experience and respond to the racialization or the stigma associated with the global war on terror regime. What this entailed was first constructing a huge database of all of Pakistani organizations that are registered in these three metropolitan areas. And then from there, I proceeded to contact leaders, key informants, government officials, and I conducted 131 interviews across the three cities. Now, how does the regime work? Well, the way I theorize the global regime of the war on terror is that it came about through a series of executive orders that were primarily enacted in the United States, but then were also mimicked for the most part in the UK. And there's a list of these different types of acts. The ones that are particularly relevant to charities is in 2005, the US Treasury released anti-terrorist financing guidelines, and they also created a database of every charity in the world all of them in their database, right? To basically monitor and to, if they if they weren't in compliance, to investigate them to see if they are supporting the financing of terrorist groups abroad. Um, as I said, similar policies are modeled after the U.S. and the U.K. And here's how the global regime works in practice. And this, this came about actually through interviews I did with people on the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. So basically, the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force has the right to investigate any person, any organization, any institution in the world, with the exception of if they're in North Korea, if they're in Israel, or if they're in Iran. So the reason they can't, it makes sense why they can't do it in Iran and North Korea, although the Iran thing might change. They can't do it in Israel because they don't have jurisdiction, and the Israelis have their own counterintelligence unit, which works very closely with the Joint Terrorism Task Force. So it's almost like they don't actually need to do it in Israel. But the entire globe is under the jurisdiction of the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. So the way I interpret this, right, is that there is that this is a case example of a global regulatory regime that can go anywhere it wants, do whatever it wants, and everybody is subject to its regulations. And, and if it views you not in compliance, you know, it, it has the right to investigate and prosecute. In the last 10 years, these are some of the most mainstream, largest, well-funded organizations, Muslim organizations in the US, Canada, and the UK. They have all been investigated by various factions, either mainly by the US, but in some cases by the UK. And almost all of them have been found basically not guilty of anything. But they've all been investigated, right? So the stigma, their donations take a dive, and there's been a you know, whole effect of all this. So the question I'd seek to look in this was how do Pakistani immigrant organizations experience the war on terror in three different local national contexts? As I said, this is what the sector looked like. We can just briefly look at this. So, you know, it's quite different across the three cities. Um, this is a graphical depiction of the different types of organizations. You'll see that in London there's a lot of social service organizations, and in New York there's a lot of religious organizations. 
From there, I conducted these semi-structured interviews, and I did a random sample strategy because I had this nice database, so I was able to actually do a stratified random sample for the interviews in order to increase the representativeness of the qualitative data. Uh, you can see this is how long they been. So the key things that I want to highlight in the findings, I mean, of course, it's a big project. You can't talk about the whole thing here. Is that over 60% of the leaders reported feeling stigmatized because of their Pakistani Muslim identity of their organizations. And over 85% of the organizations reported feeling stigmatized because of their work in Pakistan. So we're talking a lot about racialization, but in this research, a lot of the language that the, the informants use was stigma. So what I did in this work to interpret this and to kind of merge this with the racialization idea was to call what they were experiencing global racialized organizational stigma. Because this was a specific stigma they're having because they're organizations. The stigma is about the fact that are they funding terrorists, right? Are they giving money to the Taliban? That's what the concern is. I mean, some of it is probably individual as well, but it's really about the organizations. So I define this as when a set of collective discourses imply that social, economic, or political problems are the consequences of organizations serving a racial ethnic or religious minority group. The perceived association between the organization and racialized group generates a racialized organizational stigma. So in some ways, this concept is very close to what I've already been arguing about the racialization. This is just particular to organizations, how they experience it. So one of the key findings of this study is despite the differences across the three communities, across the three national contexts, across the three local contexts, that they all experience very similar forms of this stigma, or racialization, if you will. And what it consisted of was a backlash type of racialization. This happened right after attacks, in particularly in New York and in London, after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and 7-7. They also experienced a high level of co-ethnic mistrust and suspicion. And this, again, I would argue, is a product of this overall racialization, where their own co-ethnic, co-national Pakistanis are also afraid to deal with the organizations because they're afraid of what might happen. Right? If they get investigated, I don't want to be involved with your organization if something happens in the future. And then, of course, finally, they have a high sense of stigma or racialization as a result of the global regulatory environment in which they're constantly under pressure to be in compliance, constantly under pressure to maintain high levels of transparency, and this pressure turns into high administrative costs. So they're spending a lot of money trying to maintain transparency, and at the end of the day, this is very counterproductive to their missions. So they're not spending the, all the money they're bringing in through donations to actually do what they're supposed to be doing in their mission statements. They're spending it all on basically managing the racialized stigma. Now, there's other evidence looking at this same idea of global racialization that's been emerging, looking at different groups. So there's a quite widespread literature talking about the racialization of North African immigrants throughout Europe. And again, I would argue that this evidence that we see is, is consistent with this idea that racialization as a process can have a global dimension. It can work across many different places affecting the same group. Um, Thomas Lacroix has done some great work looking into Moroccan immigrant organizations in France, also showing a similar type of kind of racialization. He doesn't really use the term, but a similar type of stigma, ethnicization, I think that's the term he was using when we were discussing this, about how Moroccan organizations are viewed in France, right, vis-a-vis -vis other types of groups. Of course, there's a growing literature on Somali immigrants in the US and Canada and the type of racialization they experience in organizing in their associations. Uh, Dunn and all have a great paper on Australia looking at racialization and Islamophobia, how it's working there. Um, Junaid Rana has a great book looking at how racialization occurs of South Asian migrants in the Gulf. So Muslim immigrants in a Muslim country with the racialized because they're not Arabs. 
So you're looking at how those dynamics are playing out in the Gulf region. And then finally, we see widespread racialization and really dehumanization of Syrian refugees, especially in the United States. And I would say that it's a little more mixed here in Europe, and there's a lot of people trying to do things here. But in the US, in the political discourse, they're very much racialized, dehumanized, all as potential terrorists, right? even if they're five years old, whatever. They might grow up to become terrorists. So, I guess I want to kind of wrap up now and leave some time for some thoughts or reactions before I finish up. So I think the key things to take away from this talk are that immigrant incorporation has many trajectories. There is this straight line classic thing that you know is often criticized, but we have evidence that it does happen. We do see groups still undergoing straight line assimilation right, in the US. We see that assimilation in the US case and other countries can also be segmented. There can be different trajectories. Some groups may integrate into a uh, underclass, some may go into an ethnic conclave, like a delayed assimilation, and some may have the straight line assimilation. We see that in the case of Canada and some other societies, some other cities actually, that there is a multicultural type of incorporation happening. And it's important to maybe mention briefly the difference between national and local, local context. So at a national level, for instance, the United States has no policy for migration. They definitely don't endorse multiculturalism the way Canada does. But if you look at the way that immigrants are incorporated in a place like New York City or in San Francisco or Los Angeles, cities that have their own institutional infrastructures, have their own histories of being these kind of gateways for immigrants, they may actually have a lifestyle that's very similar to maybe an official multicultural kind of a lived experience. So it's important to, again, maintain the importance of the context. And these immigrants could be integrating while keeping their ethnic culture traditions. We see that many migrant immigrant groups are also engaging in a transnational type of lifestyle, where you know they're also maintaining ties or a foot in one place or another. And then finally, what I've been talking about, we also see that some groups or in some society, some context, there's a racialized corporation that's unfolding. So I'm not sure which is the best theory, and maybe perhaps it depends on the context, but I think that it's probably a combination of these things are all happening when we look at immigrant integration from a holistic point of view. I also believe that the structural organization of receiving society really shapes incorporated experiences of the immigrants and their children. That's not to say that the structure is all, in, all deterministic, that there's no agency, but I think it's important to recognize that, it's, that it has to be better appreciated in research on immigrant integration in particular, and transnationalism, I would argue, that there needs to be a better appreciation of how the existing structure and, and different types of social organization are affecting what, what's happened to immigrants. Because after all, when immigrant groups are arriving in society, they're not arriving to a blank canvas. Like That society already has a history, it already has an existing social order. And it's all about where do they integrate into that? Do they make their own social order? Do they integrate in the pre-existing order? And I think that's the task for social scientists, to understand that. Racialized categories demar demarcate a structural hierarchical social organization between groups. That's what I've argued in the paper, and that's kind of what the racialized corporation framework is arguing. These categories of differentiation can be historical or new configurations. And I think from the evidence that I've reviewed and some of the stuff that's emerging now, that it seems that this framework of this approach, racialized corporation, can actually explain the experiences of several different immigrant groups across many different national contexts in North America and Europe. And finally, these new global manifestations of racialization can generate similar experiences across different national contexts for the same group. I think one of the key things to take away from this in terms of conceptually, is that racialization as a process 
doesn't need to be contingent on race being there. So as we saw in the research from France, you can have a society that doesn't believe in race, that doesn't have race, but it doesn't mean that racialization as a process isn't occurring. And perhaps it's not the best term, racialization. But we're not talking about the term, we're talking about the process. So the process of creating these discourses that elevate one group or create or associate political, cultural problems with the, with the culture or phenotype or national origin of a group, that's a process that's happening everywhere. And it doesn't really matter whether they use the concept of race or not. And it's happening not only in Europe and North America, it's happening in all kinds of societies, in Africa, in Asia, and I think it's a useful way to try to understand social organization. I would argue that in Europe and North America, religion may be becoming the new marker of group difference, particularly the Muslim, anti-Muslim, or non-Muslim, but that's really becoming a distinction. And that's also true that that's happening in Africa and in Asia, that that's becoming a new marker of the in-group and the out-group, or a new marker of the process of othering. Finally, social scientists must focus on understanding how the processes of racialization vary across different contexts and how racialization shapes groups, networks, organizations, institutions, and the lived experiences of individuals. So I'll finish with this in terms of thinking about the contemporary moment. And I would, I would, I would you know, I guess I would ask you to think about this a little bit when you move on from this lecture about going to these talks. How is racialization shaping the politics and policies of migration and immigrant integration in 2016? Just think about the stuff you're reading in the paper, about the news. To what extent are these ideas I've presented today shaping that? Or can you use these ideas to understand that? And then secondly, how is this idea of racialization shaping the discourse on the refugee crisis? This is a picture from uh, 1946 in Europe, showing refugees from World War II, and they were racialized the same way back then, right? But when we think about them today, there's a different imaginary, a different discourse we talk about those refugees. And of course, these are refugees from like two weeks ago, right? So something else to think about. So I'll stop there. Hopefully, we have a little bit of five minutes or so for some comments or reactions or anything. So thank you very much.